This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This is God's word. We're beginning a new series. And uh, the new series addresses the question, every fall we like to address the question of who is Jesus Christ? It's really the central question in all of history, human history, which means that it's a central question that we should be asking and concluding in our lives. It's not a hard case to make. Some of you are saying, why is that the central question? It's not a really hard case to make. You know, um, since 2013, Time Magazine has ranked Jesus Christ the most influential figure in world history. And if you take a look at the revised top 100, according to Time Magazine, you know, I used to say that Paul, the Apostle Paul is ranked in the top five. The Apostle Paul has dropped to 34 under President Ronald Reagan and Charles Dickens, but only Jesus Christ, among the entire top 100, only Jesus Christ claimed to be God. Every other person who ever made that claim has been dismissed as a crazy person, but not Jesus. His claims, his claims remain. His claims are still alive. We're still trying to figure it out. So you can't, at the least, you can't be a thinking person and form some philosophy of life without first asking that question. You have to find an answer. You have to conclude the answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? Because if Jesus Christ is not God, then you shouldn't listen to a single claim. You shouldn't listen to anything that he has to say. But if Jesus Christ is God, then you have to listen to everything that he says. It should shape your life. Everything you do, you have to look into it. At the least, you have to look into it. So we go to the gospel according to John. And John, in a sense, was Jesus' best friend. Even Jesus, even Jesus Christ had an inner circle. Everyone has an inner circle. um, And uh, if you're outside of that circle, there's always a lot of confusion around that particular person. So who's the best to explain that person? It's going to be your best friends. And so uh, John is someone who can explain the beauty and the worth, the significance of knowing Jesus Christ. Now John, in uh, the first few verses that we've read this morning, it gives us a number of astonishing claims about his best friend. And uh, John is convinced that Jesus Christ, among other things, Jesus Christ is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Logos, that's the word, logos. It's a Greek word. And John is saying that Jesus Christ is the divine logos. What does it mean? It means three things. One, that Jesus Christ is the center, the center, the logic, the meaning of life. Two, that he is the authority for life. And lastly, he is the light of life. He is the center of life. He is the authority of life. And lastly, he is the light of life. Why is it significant? Because, you know, times top 100, none of them would ever claim to be the center. None of them would ever claim to be the authority. None of them would ever claim to be the light. If you look at the list of the top 100, the greatest, most influential people with the exception of one of them. All of them were great leaders. All of them were great teachers, great guides. But none of them would ever accept that role as the rationale for living. But Jesus Christ ran to it. He accepted it. He demonstrated it. 
And John, Jesus' best friend says, he says that, and, and the Bible says that. So what does it mean? That's what it means. First, we're going to look at Jesus Christ being the center of life. Verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is the divine Logos. It's a very, very loaded term back then. It was a philosophical term back then and in ancient times, and John knew exactly what he was saying. It's why every other one of the Gospels, they begin with the history and the genealogy of Christ, but John turns around and he says, wait a second, our world, our culture, our society, we're grappling with this question, this philosophical question of Logos, and so, and he knew exactly what that meant when he was saying it. A Greek word, it's translated, it's the way we use, you know, we, we, use, uh, we use it to mean the word logic. But John was not talking about the kind of logic that we were talking about, that we were referring it when we used the word logic. When he uses the word logos, in ancient Greece, in this era, the post-Hellenistic age era, they debated at a very philosophical level what, dr- what drives every human being. Formally or informally. And the question that every person was living, was just grappling with in that time is the question that we grapple with today. What am I living for? What is life about? What is life for? For example, if you have a friend who walks into the Apple store and he says, I need a powerful computer, walks into the Apple store and purchases a shiny new MacBook Pro, spends thousands of dollars on this computer, a month later, you walk in and you say, How's, what's this person doing with this computer? And you notice all they use that computer for is email and music. What are you going to say to that person? You're going to say, you know, this is very, you just spent thousands of dollars to do very, what any small thing, any small device can do. Your phone can do that. What are you doing? You're not realizing the potential of this computer. This is ineffective. This is inefficient. It's actually a waste. You don't understand the logos the function, the principal meaning of what this device is about. Because if you did, either A, you would reject it, or B, you're going to do more with it. Understand and realize the potential of what you have. After all, what's a MacBook Pro for? You'd say that. The Greeks were trying to find the function, the principal existence, the meaning of why am I here? What is my life about? The Logos. Because if you can answer that question, if you can answer that question, you will realize the potential of your life. You're going to realize the function, the principal existence. You're going to become everything that you're supposed to be. You're going to pursue that. And as a result, there's going to be joy, and there's going to be life, and there's going to be freedom. There's going to be meaning. You're finally going to realize what you were built for, why you are here, and you can become everything that you're supposed to be. Now, by the time Jesus came along, and John's writing this, really, by the time Jesus came along, the philosoph- all the Greek philosophical schools had concluded there is no answer to that question. Maybe there's no answer to that question. We've been debating this for centuries, and maybe there's no answer. Now, think about this. They were not arguing. They were not debating who the greatest NBA player was. You know, there's no answer to that question either. But not having an answer to that question is not going to shape your life. It's not going to change your life. But you can't just look at this question, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? You cannot look at that question and say, oh, maybe there's no answers. Because that's going to shape you. The Greeks knew that. Even Nietzsche knew 
when he said there may not be an answer to this question, even Nietzsche said, he concluded, as a result, there will be no morality. Human existence will resort to violence, evil, plunder, immorality, genocide. Even Nietzsche concluded that. The Epicureans, one philosophical school in John's day, said there are no answers. And as a result, what's the point? Just live a good time. Just, just live a good, uh, have a good time. Live for pleasure. On the other hand, you had the Stoics in John's day who sounded nobler. And they said, well, there are no answers, but what we should be doing is we should be pretending that there are answers, that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and we should pursue good as a result. So you have to be strong. You have to be moral. You have to be generous. You have to be good. You have to make the world a better place. We have to pursue good. By the way, that's us. That's Philadelphia, large city in the world. Unless you believe what John says, unless you believe that John says that there is an answer, there is a logos, you have to side either with one school of thought or the other. Either you're going to say there is no such thing as morality and live an immoral life because there's no such thing as a right or wrong, or you're going to say, hey, we have to pursue morality one way or the other. Either you're going to say life is irrational or I'm going to pursue a rational life. Either I'm just going to be a wild person or I'm going to be a good person. You have to choose one or the other if there are no answers. Everyone today is still trying to find the answer to that question. And there are no answers. And they don't want to be reminded. You know, and that goes all the way back to the ancient times. We don't want to be reminded that we can't find answers to that question. There's this place in the Old Testament in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, it begins with a party. A huge party, a 180-day party. The king in that day, the most powerful king, the, the most powerful empire to date at that time in Esther's day, throws a tremendous party. Now, he knows there's a tremendous nervousness running through the kingdom because they're actually about to be invaded and taken over by the next superpower that was arising. But what does he do? He doesn't want to be reminded. He throws a party that lasts six months, six months of drunkenness in the palace. So whether you are in Esther's day or in today's modern time, we're all still trying to find the answers to the question, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? We're struggling with the notion because we've been told, we're struggling with that notion that we're just chemicals that have collided by chance because if we are, then there is no meaning. There are no answers. And if there are no answers, what's the point of living a good life? What's the point of loving someone? Because is there such a thing as love? Is there such a thing as hate? It's all the same thing. We're just a bunch of, you know, atoms that have collided and by chance we've become who we are. What's the point of even having a law? What's the point of justice? Because your view of it and my view of it, it doesn't matter. We're all right, so to speak, because there are no answers. In the end, there's no such thing as justice. In the end, there's no such thing as justice. Now, if we just came together through a series of violent reactions, chemical reactions, then natural selection, violence, survival wins. And so you can try to have a good time for a while, but think about this. Reality will continue to break in. You can't repress it. There will be startling moments in your life where you still have to ask the question and you're still going to be seeking answers. And so if you say there's no logos, no rationale, no meaning, you have to figure a way to balance the irrationality of life with the inherent struggle to reconcile why betrayal is any less natural than honor than love. Why hate is any less better, any less uh, good than love.
We all have that problem. And as a result, John's statement here is remarkable because he's touching on why we exist. When John says that Jesus Christ is the Word, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. What that means is Jesus, the Logos, came down. What John is saying is that there is a Logos. There is a word. There is an answer. There is meaning, and it's not a concept. It's not an ideal. It's a person. The word was with God, and the word was God. The Logos is a person. It means you can know him. It means you can be known by him. It means you can love him. It means you can be loved by him. It means you can serve him. It means you will be served by him. You, do you get that? That the Logos is not, it's not less than a set, a set of principles, really. It's actually infinitely more than a set of principles. Do you get that? God saw a world that was on fire, and so what did he do? He literally punched a hole into the roof of the world and went down and in himself to rescue. That's what's going on here. That's what John is saying. Christianity begins with a logos, begins with meaning. That's what John's saying. Without it, you're going to be searching for the rest of your life, and you're going to pour into your, your work, you're going to pour into family, you're going to pour into children, you're going to pour into intimate relationships, physical intimacy for that matter. You're going to pour into just accruing wealth, accruing power, working out a cause in your life to find this answer. And so the answers are deeply philosophical, this question has existed for eons, but it's not a philosophy. That's what John is saying. It's actually comprehensive. covers all of our bases, every aspect of our lives. There's a power. It's dynamic. John says this is a power. If you know him, if you serve him, if you love him, if you connect with him, that truth will fill up your mind and your heart, and it's going to change you. Now, he's saying don't just seek truth. Truth is reality. Truth is a person. Connect with him. Know him. Love him. Trust him. Now think about it. If truth was just an ideal, it can influence you. It can influence you, but it's not going to be a power in your life. You're either going to take it or you're going to leave it. But if truth is a person, a person, a relationship as it gets closer, everyone that's experienced this, as you grow closer in relationship with people, you will argue. You're going to fight. There are going to be dis disagreements. You're going to be disturbed. Sometimes you're going to be confounded. You're going to be convinced sometimes. You're going to be renewed sometimes. It's going to shape you. A relationship will bring you joy, will bring you freedom, will bring you comfort. Sometimes it's going to disturb you. Sometimes you're going to feel judged. That's not a bad thing. You know, if you think about it, I do things all the time. When you get married, there are things, it's two random people. If you think about what marriage is, no matter how close you are, it's really two random people with two different upbringings coming together as one. And when you do that and share lots of the same space and lots of the same time together, there are things I do all the time that my closest friends, my family, my inner circle, my wife in particular, will look at me, you know that look that they give you? It's a look, and you can feel the look. And I say, I know you're judging me. Why? Because when you disagree, what you're saying is, I don't understand you. You're going to have to explain yourself to me. Help me to understand. That's the way we look at Jesus. That's the way we look at the Bible. I'm going to bring this home for a bit. What John is saying is, here's a person that can be your rationale for living. 
What are your priorities? What is your true north in all of your decisions? Is it living for God's pleasure and honor and his greatest pleasure? Or is it living for your pleasure, your honor, your greatest pleasure in life? Because if it's not living for God's pleasure and honor, you're going to have to manufacture your own logos. And that's going to lead you to a life of labor and anxiety and anger. And think about it. If it's not Jesus Christ, it's going to be image. It's going to be your figure. It's going to be beauty. That's a terrible thing to live for. You know why? Because you're going to wrinkle. You're going to bald. That's what's going to happen in life. Is it going to be a relationship? Are you going to pursue a relationship as your logos? Either a professional relationship or a personal relationship? Those are just people. And that means they're sinners. They're broken. That means you're going to be hurt and you're going to be angry and you're going to be bitter in life. It doesn't matter what it is. There's a movie, an old movie in the, in the late 80s that came out called Point Break. They're actually redoing the movie. It's coming out, I believe, pretty soon. Without telling you anything about the movie, um, and I don't know what the new movie is about. I hear it's a take of the old movie, but it's about a surfer who's wild, a very wild surfer. He's an Epicurean. He's living for himself. He's got a group of friends who are living for themselves. They have their own view of what is right and what is wrong. And towards the end of the movie, as he's looking for his last thrill because life has pretty much caught up with him, he has lost all of his friends. He has lost pretty much all of the wealth that he had accrued, that he had stolen. And he's staring as a surfer at the great wave that is coming. And he's just staring out there into the unknown because he now has, there's no uncertainty in his life. The life that he has lived has pretty much brought him. He thought it was so sure. He thought it was so certain. But he's now staring at the great wave. And he doesn't know what's next. Life has caught up with him. And he's lost his freedom. He's lost everything. And he's questioning the meaning of his life. It's symbolic. There are people here right now who've been trying to manufacture their own logos, their own meaning of life, good or bad. And now they're staring at the waves. They've lost everything. They're looking into the unknown. There are no answers. Life is broken. They've lost a lot. Or you're really staring at the waves because you've experienced success. You've experienced joy. You've experienced love. And you realize you're coming up empty. It's not enough. There's still an unknown. There's no certainty in life. If you're trying to manufacture some other logos than the one that John has put forth as the rationale, as the center, the motivation for living, you're absolutely going to end up staring at the waves. John says, Jesus Christ is the Logos. Jesus is the center. And that's going to give you meaning, and that's going to give you purpose, but it's also going to comfort you because there's certainty. There's certainty. Now, that's the longest part. We have to understand the centrality of Jesus. The second point is, he's not just the rationale. He's not just the meaning. He's not just the purpose for life but he's also the authority. And that means that he's truth. There's a real reality. And as a result, it reveals how you should live. If Jesus Christ is the truth, if he is the meaning, if he is the center, then he's also going to be the authority that shapes your life. Now, postmodernists don't believe in a Logos truth 
that there's some sort of ultimate absolute authority that we should obey. Why? Because we're very empirical. We're very empirical in life. Everything has to be explained through facts, through science, or through how you feel because you believe your feelings are real, as real as science in some ways, even though feelings and science both change and conflict with each other. Trust me, I was a chem and biology major. I know. So, but we don't believe that, we're, that we, you know, we should submit or obey anybody except for our own desires as a result. But why do we follow science? It's because we long for something that we can trust. Facts, details, truth. Something that is going to extend beyond, what, that's going to help to explain what we see. And it doesn't let us down. Like math. Math is dependable. Math is formulaic. It's dependable. It's reliable. It's testable. It's provable. It's logical. We're yearning for that. Our hearts are constantly yearning for truth. And it's because in our spiritual DNA, we've been built up to know that truth, reality exists. There is a God who's actually speaking into that, who speaks words. In the beginning was the word. He's speaking into us and is giving us reality, giving us truth. We can trust it. John is saying, you can trust this like math. Now, we don't yearn for Jesus Christ because he's good, even though he is. In actuality, if you come to Jesus Christ, he's actually very threatening. Very, very threatening in our lives. But the reason why we yearn for someone, and John is saying that truth is Jesus, is because deep inside we know that a world without truth is uncontrollable. A world without truth is unreliable, unbearable. There's another way to put it. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing has been made that nothing is made that has been made. What he's saying here is that Jesus Christ is the author. He is the authority and the author. Now, that's why he can speak with authority because he is the author. If you take a poem, if you take a song, if you take a piece of literature, and you sit around in a classroom, we debate the meaning of a certain poem. We can sit here and debate for hours the meaning. I can sit here and ask you what you think about each poem, or each movie, or each song, or each piece of literature. And each person can share their opinions. If you've ever been in a literature class or in a poetry class, you would understand that people sit there and share and decipher and try to understand the consistency based on what they understand of who? The author. Based on their understanding of the author. But if one day the author actually walks in and, and sits in and sits down and sits at the head of the class and the people are saying, well, actually, I think this poem means this. And the author gets up and says, no, that's actually not what I meant. This is what I meant. Who can debate that? Who can sit there and say, no, 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 that's untrue. Why? Because he's the author. If you sit here and watch a movie and you say, well, I think the writers meant this and this is what they were trying to convey and the actual author, the screenplay writer and the director get up and say, no, that is absolutely not what we meant. What we meant was this instead. What can you say? Because they're the authors. The conversation is over. End of discussion. The word authority comes from the word author. When an author speaks, nobody has anything else to say. And what John is saying is that Jesus Christ is the author of your life. Verse 3, through him, nothing has been made that has been made. He is the author of life. Who are you going to believe? Take this car, nice German, sophisticated car, sophisticated design. 
you take that car, you get in there, and, you know, if my mom took that car, she will drive that car 30 miles an hour, no matter what the speed limit is, she will drive it 30 miles an hour in the dark, in light, she will stay in one lane, cars are honking, you know, and and she's just going to stay in that lane as if there was a blinking light in front of her the entire day. She's going to drive that car around. She takes five minutes just to put the car in reverse and try to back it into a parking spot. That's my mom. In a a nice German sophisticated car, that's what she would do. It doesn't matter. She's going to treat that car any way she wants. That's all she knows. If you get in that car, unless you actually read the manual of the authors who have designed that car, you're going to take that car and you're going to push it in any way you want. Now, what does a manual tell you? A manual is going to tell you when to take oil changes, when your servicing needs to be done. In fact, certain car manuals will tell you, here's when you should push the car to the limits and here's how you should treat the car once in a while to tune it up manually on your own. Here's what parts you should use Don't put this kind of oil in there. Don't put this kind of antifreeze in there. Here's when you should do it. Some cars are very, very sophisticated. Now, those rules seem very, very rote. They seem very, very mechanical. But if you disobey any of them, you're never going to experience the true potential that that car offers. Why? Because the authors are telling you that if you want to increase the potential, increase the enjoyment, You have to follow the design of of the car. Now you can say, I know how to do it. I'm going to treat it the way I want to treat it. I'm going to treat my life the way I want to treat it, regardless of what the manual says. Can you do that? No, because then you're never, you're making a lot of assumptions. How are you going to, here's a question. How are you going to decide how to use your sexual capacity? Are you going to be one of those people who says, no one has the right to tell me how to use my body, but me? What you're saying is, you are the author, author. That's what you're saying. But the thing is, you didn't make you. You didn't make who you are. You didn't design who you are. Did you make yourself? Think about your soul and your body. Did you have anything to do with the makeup of that? The author says, I built your body. I built sex for that matter. I built intimacy. I invented this. Here's how you should use it. Now, at that point, either you're going to submit to it or you're going to reject it. Now, listen. Somebody here is saying, I can't believe this guy, this primitive guy gets up to here and talk the way he does. Everybody here has a right to scorn what's being said up here. But everybody is talking about what the meaning of life is. And one person, at the least, one person's opinion is as good as the next. You have to recognize where we are. So at the least, you can't scorn. You may sit there and scorn, but you can't scorn because at the least, one person's opinion is as good as the next, unless you are the author, right? So although you have a right to speak, you have to recognize where you are. We live in an uncontrollable, unbearable world. And so as soon as you start to feel any semblance of joy in your life, you have to stop and say, wait, wait a second. If there's no such thing as truth, if there's no such thing as love, if we submit ourselves to chance, if there's no true author or authority in our lives, then life is chaotic and violent, and any good that I experience will be wiped away, could be taken away tomorrow, and no one has a right to say that that is good or bad. I have to submit to that as well. You have to be honest with yourself. Either there is no rationale for why you live your life, or there is. There's something objective, or if life is subjective, then there's no such thing as rape being bad. You have to submit to that. Because we're all just submitting ourselves to a life of chaos and violence in the end anyway. A personal God who reveals real truth to you and speaks into your life 
He's saying, I am the author. Without me, nothing has been made that has been made. What does that tell you? You have to read the word. You have to know God personally. He has chosen to become real and personal in your life. That's what prayer is. That's what reading the Bible is. You have to know God personally. The best way to do it, you have to plug into a community group. You have to get to know other people who are pursuing the same thing according to what the manual says. That's what community groups are. That's why we need people. Even God is multiple. Even God is three in one. And if, that's, if we are designed in that light, then the best way to understand truth is in the context of many people together as one. You have to plug into community. And so if the conclusion is Jesus Christ is the rationale for your life, and if the conclusion is Jesus Christ is the author of your life, then you have to pursue the word. You have to pursue the truth. What the Bible says. Get rid of your assumptions. Because you're going to find that a lot of the assumptions feed into your judgment of God, but it takes away the reality of who God is in his gentleness, in his kindness, in his goodness. It's going to take away from all those things. So what do we do? The last point is that Jesus Christ is the light for your life. He's the center. He's the authority. He's the light. Now, some people here believe, you know, they said, hey, you know, you're sitting here and you're saying, well, that's very rational. I can believe that. Or maybe you've been here for a long time. And yet, I absolutely have to believe here that whether you sit here for the first time and saying, well, that makes sense, or you've been here the entire time walking with us as a church, there's a possibility that Jesus Christ, the reality of who he is, has not really become the center or the author in your life. And it's because he's not your light. That's the reason. Because you have a lot of other low goy, low gosses in your life, other things that you live for, other things that are the rationale, the meaning, other things that are your purpose, other things that drive your life, And it could be a particular relationship, or it could be a particular salary figure, or it could be a particular truth, another type of truth, a philosophy, or it could be a particular title, or a particular uh, type of house, or a particular family, or a particular look, image, reputation. You get what I'm saying? A lot of us here can say rationally, I believe everything that you're saying, and yet have so many other logoi in your life that your truth, it hasn't really lit up your life. It hasn't become your light. So verse 4 means very little to you. In him was life, and that life is the light of man. What is light? If you're in a dark room, imagine this room, pitch black. You know all the, by now if you've been here, you know semi the dimensions of this room. You kind of know where things are casually. But if this room were pitch black, first of all, we'd be frantic. Why? Because now we've been given into the chaos, the unbearable quality of life. If this room were pitch black and you cannot see even, you know, six inches in front of you, you'll still stumble around. I bet you most of you will forget who's even next to you. You're going to be stumbling around, bumbling around, colliding into things, hurting yourself, hurting other people. Light gives clarity, light gives a way, light gives the means. Through the light, we can, we can navigate, you see. Light gives exposure. You're able to see everything that is real. It's not just conceptual anymore. It's not just an understanding or an assumption. You're able to make a way and peruse and pursue. You're able to see when you have light, see clearly. 
Light gives you nourishment. You know, without light, we have no life at all. Night gives nourishment. Because you have light, you're able to see, you're able to navigate around your way. You have freedom. So light gives freedom in your life. Light dictates where you go. You're always going to be looking for light to find a way because you believe where there is light, there is security and there is safety. Light dictates then your potential, your freedom, your joy, your power, your identity. Without life, you, without light, you have no identity because you can't see. What's the purpose of how you look if there's no light? You can't see yourself for that matter. You're going to stumble. You're going to be depressed. You're going to be wandering. You're going to be pursuing whichever way you can pursue. And when everybody in the room is doing that, there'll be collisions, there'll be brokenness. It'll be damaging. Now, some people say, gosh, I know what you're saying here. I know where you're getting at. I want to believe this, but I don't. I want that, but I don't. What are you saying? Look, Jesus Christ John is saying, Jesus Christ, you know, in, in, this, in this passage, in this book of John, Jesus Christ is a prophet, but he doesn't, he doesn't just say, you know, what's, what's John saying? He doesn't just bring truth. He's not just speaking into you as a prophet. He is truth. He is the ultimate prophet. My voice, later on he says, is truth, real reality. My voice is power. That means he can be central in your life. In John chapter 4, you have this Samaritan woman who's, who's basically an Epicurean. She's been living her own life, living her own way. And in that one encounter with Jesus Christ, she says, you know, I know that the Messiah is coming. I know that ultimate reality is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to me. He will give me light. He will tell me the way. And Jesus Christ faces her and says, I am he. I who speak to you am he. That's what he says in John chapter 4. And immediately her life is changed. Jesus Christ speaks to Lazarus in John chapter 11. We're going to go into this. This is an introductory to the book. In John chapter 11, Jesus calls out to Lazarus. The problem is Lazarus is dead. He's in a tomb. He says, I want you to take away the tomb. Take away the stone. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus heard the voice's power, dynamic, and it gave him life. Commentators say that, thank God, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. That he was specific about Lazarus because if he said, come out, the ent- all the tombs would have opened up. Everyone would have had life. Because Jesus Christ is truth, he can speak truth. If, if you're feeling dead spiritually in your life, let him speak into you. He can speak truth, and that truth has power, a dynamic quality that will raise you up. And by the way, if you're saying, I feel dead, you still have feeling, and God has brought you here. That means you still feel something. God is here to meet you. Do you see that? That even to the hardest heart, even to a dead heart, he can bring you life. If you like to believe, you're saying, I'm struggling, but I want to believe, it may actually be happening already. Do you see that? How does it happen? How does it actually happen? At the heart of this passage. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. That light, that life is the light of man. He says, I am that light. And then you see the cross. And as Jesus is on the cross, 
It says a darkness came over the land. There was a darkness. And that means that this is Jesus Christ is on the cross and there's darkness in his life. And in ultimate darkness, Jesus Christ is literally staring out at the wave of judgment. The wave of judgment that's coming at him. And there is darkness. And he says, you know, although it's dark here presently, although it's dark here currently, the ultimate darkness is coming into my life because he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is my light, my center, my authority has just left me and I am lost. I'm staring at the wave of uncertainty that is in front of me. And it's coming down at me. It's going to crash down on me like the wrath of God. In totality, it's going to come crashing down. And as a result, the ultimate darkness is crashing down on me. And I am completely lost. Now I have no rationale. What is the meaning of my life? When you say, my God, my God, what you're saying is, my center, my center has been lost. That means you're just lost. You are in darkness. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There is no life. Jesus Christ is saying, I'm experiencing the ultimate chaos, the ultimate violence. And I'm staring at the ultimate waves of wrath and uncertainty and judgment. It is going to come pounding down on me. And on the cross, he says, my God, my God. What he's saying is, what is the meaning of this? But do you realize he never gave up his authority? He never gave up God as authority. Even then, at the peak of the wrath, at the peak of the darkness, he says, my God, my God. He still sees God as a center. Even though the center is left, my God, my God. God is still my center. God is still my authority. And why did he do that? He did that for you. He did that for me. He did that for us. Look at the beauty of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. The sacrifice and the mercy and the majesty of Christ. The beauty of who he is and what he did. Do you see that? Jesus Christ, the light of life, facing the ultimate darkness. Why? So you can have life, the light of men. You can have clarity. That means it's possible to have clarity. It's possible to see yourself. It's possible to see your design. It's possible to see truth. It's possible to see reality and know a way. Do you see that? Jesus Christ, when he says, my God, my God, why? What he's saying is, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, the prophets, every prophet screams out, why, O oh God? Why, O oh Lord? You never see that in the New Testament. Not a single apostle or disciple or prophet in the New Testament ever questions why. Do you ever think about that? You ever notice that? Except for one, and it's Jesus on the cross. He says, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I am now representing the totality of all the confusion that has ever existed about God in the world. I've lost it. Why? So that you can see. You can have clarity. I've lost power. Why? The dynamic power of the presence of God. Why? So that you can have power. I've lost meaning. My life is worthless now. My, wife, my life has no significance now. Why? So you can have significance. You can have meaning. He's transferred his significance. The beauty and the significance of being a child of God, the son of God, has been transferred to you. See the gospel. Jesus Christ came down for us. Jesus Christ punched a hole in a world that was on fire right through the roof and entered in. And at the cost of his life, not at the risk of his life, at the cost of his life, has rescued us. That is the objective reality. If you want to look for significance and meaning, there's your meaning. 
If you want to look for, do I have worth? There is your worth. God himself, if you were the only person on earth remaining, has punched a hole into reality to rescue you. There's meaning. There's purpose. There's love. That's reality. There are people here that have been telling themselves all their lives that they are worthless. And as a result, the only way they can find worth is to give themselves to other people. Sexually, and as a result, over and over, giving up their purity. There are people here in this room who feel themselves to be so worthless. The only way, their egos are so shallow, the only way they can find any form of approval or acceptance is to get the smile from their boss or a promotion. That's the only thing that can prove I'm worth it. There are people in this room who are, you know, we're very petty about our worth, if you think about it. If you think about where your ego takes you, that one, you, you can construct yourself to be an upright father, an upright and righteous man, obeying and civilly, you know, just being a great citizen, and yet that one thing that someone says about you can tear you down for weeks and weeks on end. We have very, very fragile egos. Who can save you? Who can rescue you? Because it will send you to a life of work and labor and anxiety and bitterness for the rest of your life unless you find an answer to the question, do I have meaning? Do I have purpose? What is my center? John is saying, in the beginning was the word. That means from the beginning of time, God has crafted this amazing story of redemption for you. And you are not just an ancillary person looking out and saying, wow, that's an interesting story. You are actually a part of that story because you are part of that redemptive process. Jesus Christ came for you. In all of your suffering, it puts your suffering into perspective. It puts your life into perspective. It puts all of your sinfulness and your shortcomings and your flaws and your insecurities and your fears into perspective. Do you believe that? That it's for you. Believe it. It's true. It is written. It's true. It has been tested. It has been challenged. It remains. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the, in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing has been made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life is the light of men. Will you make Him your light? Because that light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness does not understand it. Will you make Him your life? Because if you do, if you plug in, if you connect with the love of Christ and the grace of Christ and the gentleness of Christ and the kindness of God, our Lord and Savior, then it will not just, you're not just going to know him, you're going to be known. You will realize how known and how loved and how embraced no matter where you are, no matter where you are. And that truth is going to go deep and it's going to shape you. And it may be a little seed that's going to kind of bother you a little bit in the beginning, maybe make you feel guilty in the beginning, maybe even feel judged in the beginning. But if you keep pursuing that, you know what's going to happen? It's going to grow as a tree into an oak. Isaiah 63, it's going to grow you into an oak of righteousness. Do you believe that? Will you begin that journey? If you haven't begun that journey, will you begin that journey? Let's pray.